Hey, everybody, this is Optimus Maximus, your host of the Retro Futures Culture Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the 1984 film Dune by David Lynch. With me tonight, I have a very, very special guest. He is the founder of Ruminations Radio Network, and tonight we're calling him Optimus Prime. <laughs> Optimus Prime, how are you today? I mean, it's it's Mitch from Ruminations Radio Network. Don't, we're just having some fun. I'm doing great, man. Thanks. I'm so glad to be uh, sitting down chatting with you. And I, I uh, this this is a really important episode to me. I love this movie, and I'm really excited to to hear your thoughts on it. And I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, this was a film that I first saw as a youngster sometime on uh, cable or HBO, uh, something. We had cable when I was a kid, sometime in 84, 85. And uh, I just remember I would just sit and stare at the TV going, what is this crazy, <laughs> amazing thing? And like I, the story was way over my head, but there were parts of the movie that I thought were really cool. Like the sandworms look cool. I don't care what anybody says. The weirding modules were cool. <laughs> um, the, the production design was amazing. The weird, like that was my first exposure to David Lynch. And there was just something about the style that I really enjoyed. Um, I thought the actors were all good. You know, some people talk about, oh, um, you know, what's his name was too old to be um Kyle McLaughlin was too uh, old to be Paul Atreides, blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> that was his first real big breakout role. I mean, that was Lynch found him and put him in that. And I think that's why Lynch later used him for, you know, another one of the Ruminations favorite shows, Twin Peaks. <laughs> yes, very much. Right. Yeah. And Blue um, Velvet and Kiss continually worked with him for. for right. Him. Yeah. Perhaps Blue Ribbon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what was your What was your first uh, exposure to the Almighty 1984 Dune? You know that that movie didn't hit me till much later. Like I grew up watching uh, sci-fi. Obviously, I'm a Star Wars kid and devoured those a lot when I was younger. And we didn't have cable, and until we moved to to Hawaii, we never had because I mean we just it was a little small town, so we had no access to anything really like that cool. But so it was years. I was probably in high school by the time I finally saw the film and I had already read the book by then uh, because, Ooh. you know, we all kind of move in those circles, right? We have these certain tastes and the, the you know, it was kind of unavoidable. <clears throat> but when I did see the movie, um, it really, it just floored me. It blew me away that the visuals you already mentioned, like it is sci-fi fantasy and it's wondrous because so much of it is is so alien. It's so foreign. And the, the way that he portrayed it on screen, and I'm obviously going to gush a little bit on Lynch throughout this, but he did a great job. And um, I can't wait to present to you my idea of uh, tolerance for deviation from a piece of work and how much you love that piece of work. Because right. I think this movie is a really good example of that. Yeah. One of the, like, the thing is, and I, I just, I've recently rewatched it so we could talk about it on the show um this was the era when practical effects were really coming into their prime mm -hmm. but because of that they still there's so many shots in that movie that totally hold up like i'm like holy shit that still looks really good because it was an <laughs> in-camera real yeah. effect there's a couple um forced perspective shots or where they're using like half a blue screen some of those look a little wonky but most of the stuff, those were real fucking sets and real yeah. shit all built on there. I can only imagine how much work went into that. And and visually, because of that, it holds up really well. I think there's going to be a generation of the films <clears throat> from about 96 to 2005 where they kind of went crazy with the CG. Like, they're like, CG is going to be the ultimate thing. <laughs> I bet you that 10 years of film is going to age really bad. So, yeah, it really will. It's it's not going to hold up nearly as you well. You can already kind of, like, episode one of Star Wars, as much as a Star Wars fan as I am, episode one, it, it it's aged pretty bad because of that. Oh, I haven't um, seen it in a while. Yeah, it's just because of it was shot on 2K, early CG, lots of CG, almost all CG. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Okay, anyway. But I, this movie I is just colorful and beautiful. Like, I don't know. I think it was, and I, I don't want to like, derail or anything, but like in the first 10 minutes of the film, the shot, I think it's probably of, of the 
the the guild arriving to talk mm-hmm. to the emperor. Yeah, that's such a cool scene. Oh my god, the whole the the ships they're just huge and bright, and it just stuff doesn't look like that as much anymore. Right. All right. So, uh, what we're talking about is Dune, a 1984 American science fiction film. It was. An adaptation written and directed by David Lynch. It's based on the 1965 novel by Frank Herbert. Uh, the film stars stars Kyle McLaughlin. His film debut as the young Paul Atreides and includes an ensemble of well-known. There's so many good actors in this movie. So many like, you're like, wait, what the fuck? This person was in that movie? <laughs> it's got a killer um, cast, man. Like, yeah, up and down. it was like, filmed in Mexico City and it has a soundtrack. And this is, dude, this is just like super 80s, but in all the best <laughs> ways. It has music by both Toto and Brian Eno. And it's like, what? Like, so cool. Yeah. Um, Set in the distant future, the film chronicles the conflict between rival noble families as they battle for control of the extremely harsh desert planet Arrakis, also known as Dune. This is the planet that's the only source of the drug Spice, which allows pre-science and is vital to space travel, making it the most essential and valuable commodity in the universe. Um Paul Atreides is the scion and heir of a powerful noble family whose inheritance of control of Arrakis brings him into conflict with his former overlords, House Harkonnen. Paul is also possibly the Kwisatz Haderach, a yeah. messianic figure expected by the Bene Gesserit sisterhood. Or like, they're like shadow operators of this galaxy. Uh, besides Kyle McLaughlin, the film features a large ensemble. We've got Patrick Stewart, Brad Dorf, Dean Stockwell, Virginia Madsen, Jose Ferrier, Sting. Fucking Sting, Sting is in this movie. <laughs> Linda Hunt, Max von Sydow. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other like people. You're like, what? They're in this movie? Um, <laughs> Raise my beverage real quick for Dean Stockwell, who we just lost. Yeah. Rest in peace, brother. So I, I really feel like at the time that Frank wrote this book in 65 and um, the movie that spice is almost like a metaphor for the one thing that needs to run all of society. And at that time was probably the gas that was right before the gas crisis. Oh yeah. yeah. Oil. Um, we're still kind of feeling those effects. We're still very petrol fueled uh, world, uh, even though electric and solar and wind power has come a long way. It seems like the uh, oil still kind of runs the economy at mm-hmm. points. I feel like that was kind of a metaphor for that. Um, what uh, what are your favorite moments from that story, or what what are pivotal scenes that really kind of? Well, like we're we're obviously talking about the film, but the film wouldn't exist without the book, like you said when Herbert wrote it, I'm sure he was, there was a lot of metaphor going on. And I, and for me, I just, I love the story so much. And I'm, I'm, I want to start right off by saying I'm not a really super versed uh, film critic. I'm not a literary expert. So, you know, this, there's, what can we say in this episode that hasn't already been said about Dune, hasn't been said about Lynch's adaptation. I mean, you're just going to gush a little bit and talk about our interpretations of it, but I'm, when I first read the book, I found myself almost worshiping water. Like by the time I finished, I was like, yeah, man, don't, don't waste water. So I, it was just very, <laughs> so the, the ecological like slant of those books is definitely there. And then yes, the spice being similar to maybe uh petrol. It's, it's really something that it rang true. And um, I think that's what all good literature will do. Right. It makes you think about your, the world you live in, the real world you live in, and um, plus the spice worms are dope, right? You know, uh, yeah, just, I love the language of this book. There is, there's a lot of cool stuff, and I feel like he, um, you know, obviously maybe was influenced <clears throat> by Tolkien a little bit to do kind of that to have these terms, and I know he borrowed a lot of it from uh, Middle Eastern dialects and yes. languages and mixed stuff up, and. That's what a lot of these really cool stories, they take our familiar world, throw it in a blender and spit it back out and show us something that maybe we weren't paying attention to. It's, it was right in our face, but none of us were looking at it. Yeah. But when it's in a compelling story about another planet, then you go, oh, wait a minute, that kind of sounds familiar. 
And, you know, um, I was talking to Natalie about it, about, you know, um, it being hard sci-fi and, and she kind of disagreed with me. And I, I think probably after I thought about it, it's not hard sci-fi, but there are some hard sci-fi concepts and thoughts in here. Like, ben, yeah, ben, ben I think it's, space. I could see where you're coming from. It's definitely based on some science things, but then it's taken to a fantastic level. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not like Star Trek where they're really kind of trying to stay pseudo science based um one of the things i didn't know about but it made sense was that a lot of the ideas um for muadib and stuff were actually based on t.e lawrence um who there was a book written about and that became the basis for the film lawrence of arabia Um, right and one of the original pitches when they were trying to get dune adapted from the book when it sold like crazy in 65 is they're like we should get David Lean to do it because David Lean did Lawrence of Arabia, um, but David Lean, um, you know, he didn't he didn't want to do it at the time or whenever it just didn't work out. Um, but that would have been crazy to see David Lean shoot it. But I do think that in both of the film adaptations of Dune that we have, both directors respectively, Lynch and and the new film by uh, Villeneuve. Uh, did definitely were inspired by the shots in Lawrence of Arabia. I mean, that was the first movie to really, really kind of show you <clears throat> what it's like to live in the desert. Well, I mean, how many ways can you shoot a sand dune though, man? I mean, really? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> but on 65 millimeter, it definitely makes an impact. Yeah. And, uh, kind of sticks with you. Yeah. Um, there are some beautiful shots and, uh, you know, I don't know that, David Lynch gets enough credit for, for his, his eye. I mean, he does, you know, he's usually, you go right to the surrealistic stuff when you talk about Lynch, but this, this movie's got some shots. Uh, yeah. The technical quality of the, that's what I mean. There's like, there's a bunch of gorgeous, like you were talking about when uh, the navigator first shows up to the emperor, that's a really cool shot. And when they dismount off the ship and those, all those practical effects, they mm-hmm. just, it was like, wow, this still really looks good. I love the costume design. Yeah. I like that each group looks distinctively different. Like the emperor and his daughter and everybody there, they're all like kind of rich. You can tell they're the aristocrats. They have yeah. all this money. The guild navigators look like some kind of crazy cyberpunk junkies and it fits like they're in those yeah. black suits with the breathing tubes and the navigators themselves are like humans that are now mutated and they're just like these giant bulbous brains that just suck spice up yeah. i thought that was a cool idea that that derives from the book um but i i like you said we'll get into that lynch's changes i think <clears throat> made the movie more fun in a lot of ways um i like that you know, House Atreides kind of has a classic German look to them. Well, you got uh, Jürgen Prochnow rocking the Duke Leto, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the Fremen, the, the Fremen in this movie are more, uh, almost more like barbarians or something like mm-hmm. they're, and it's a whole like mismatch of different cultures. There's, you know, light skinned and dark skinned people that intermix with the Fremen here. And then, um, you know, the Harkonnens are just like, they're like European city trash or something with their <laughs> strange leather and like <laughs> their red spiky hair. <laughs> And they're really great speedos, yeah. And they're really, hey, I was gonna save that for a special scene. Oh, sorry, sorry, special. Scene. <laughs> well, yeah, let's get I, into a little bit about uh, about the uh, the adaptation of the film itself, and we can just kind of pick it apart as we as we go. Okay. Um, so the film version in the far future, the known infer- the known universe. It starts out with a really cool narration, which doesn't always work, but in the film. I think it works okay. I like the narration. I like the voiceovers. I'm sorry I do. I like most of them. There's a couple that I'm like, eh, they could have retaken. (laughs) Maybe they were rushed. I don't know. Um, The universe is ruled by the Padishah Emperor Shaddam IV. The most valuable substance is the spice, the drug that extends life and expands consciousness. The spice also allows the spacing guild to fold space, permitting safe, instantaneous interstellar travel. 
The Guild fears a conspiracy that could jeopardize spice production and sends an emissary to demand an explanation from the Emperor, who reveals his scheme to destroy House Atreides. The Emperor fears Duke Leto Atreides' growing popularity and a secret army he is reportedly amassing threaten his rule. He plans to cede control of planet Arrakis, the universe's only source of spice, to house Atreides. Once they are installed there, the Atreides will be ambushed by their arch enemies, the Harkonnens, with help from the Emperor's elite Sardukar troops. Uh, this is a this is a quite a change from both the opening of the book and later adaptations, and in some ways. I feel like this explanation kind of sets you up better for what's going forward, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like watching star Wars in order and not, <laughs> not in production yeah. order. Well, uh, the, this, it's, go ahead. I was going to say like, this is like if you watch star Wars one to six, cause you kind of already know what's going to happen. But if you read the book, do or see the newer adaptation, it's like watching four, five, six, one, two, three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they, there's so much dense, politicking going on yeah it was it was gonna be rough to try and translate that to film so considering what they had to work with what lynch had to work with that um it was it was pretty solid who did the script did he write the script himself he did with somebody else i think he had one or two other it Mm -hmm. had gone through a lot of hands um yeah but i I think david lynch was the final i think final edit for the most part now i know there was a lot of pushback from universal to try and get this in two hours. Lynch wanted it to be three hours, I think was his yeah. original vision, uh, three oh, to four hours. I know he shot, he's got enough footage. There's that uh, Paul Smithy cut that's close yeah. to four hours, um, which has a lot more footage in it. I don't think you can get that on Blu-ray or 4K, but there was a version of that, a bootleg on DVD at one time, and definitely VHS. It's definitely made the rounds, for sure. Yeah, I've seen it. <clears throat> it's okay. It would have been nice to, to, I mean, shit, I don't know about you. You, I know you would, you and I would both buy if they, if David Lynch was allowed to go back and mess with this and make his ultimate cut, like Ridley Scott did for, for Blade Runner final cut. Can we get that? Can we start this on Twitter? Can we get this going? Hashtag the Lynch cut. The Lynch cut. Let's do it. Let's get Kyle's help. Uh, I I don't know. I don't, do you know, I don't know that he actually. He might. I, just, he doesn't seem like he ever wants to go back to it. He I probably never not. It, probably it sounded like, like at the end, it sounded like he was ready to throw his hands up and just walk away. Um, yeah. All right. So the guild emperor or the guild navigator in his giant crazy. I love the crazy design. This giant like floating gas ball or uh, glass tube that he rides yeah. in. It kind of reminds me of. I, and as a kid, I don't know if it reminded you of this. But I I, I want to say that maybe Nintendo's Mother Brain from Metroid was inspired by this because Mother maybe. Brain is inside. It's very similar looking design. <laughs> uh, the Guild Navigator commands the Emperor to kill Duke Leto's son Paul Atreides because the Guild fears he may somehow threaten spice production. The execution order draws the attention of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood, since Paul is tied to their centuries-long breeding program. To produce the Kwisatz Haderach, the universe's super being. Before Paul leaves for Arrakis, he is tested by the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother Moyam by being forced to endure excruciating pain. To Moyam's surprise and eventual satisfaction, he passes the test. Uh, that's such a cool scene. And out of all the versions, I still think I prefer this version, the 84 Dune <clears throat> scene of that torture test they're all pretty similar but i the extra excruciating kind of visuals and like feeling he has is pretty pretty emoted i've heard some people (laughs) yeah it's very emotive i've heard some people like uh uh, chastise or criticize that moment and things but i it it sold it for me yeah i was very i was down with that scene i I also think the woman that plays uh mother moyam was just freaking amazing in this movie yeah, she's so good. She's got a, a definite. Um, I think the thing they kind of went for was like that really hardcore lead nun at your local church school, the kind that was never afraid to smack you on the yeah. on the hand with the ruler. <laughs> Just a slight bit of menace, but yeah, yeah. yeah. The Benny Jesuit are an interesting sisterhood. It's 
to, to see those women in power seeding these myths and and controlling and and working behind the scenes to bring about their ends, which really is pretty cool stuff, man. Really, really forward thinking for a book written in '65. Right. During, I mean, that was right at the time that counterculture was starting, right? And yeah. then a movie in '84 to to continue that on. It's, yeah. Um, so we move on to the industrial world of Gidi Prime. That's where the Harkonnens live. And it's kind of like a crazy industrial sludge cyberpunk world. Um, I love their interpretation or Lynch's interpretation of uh, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. He's like sort of like plastic surgery disfigured, but he likes that. And he's just this ghastly looking overweight guy with a crazy flying suit he just um on a segue i feel like cowboy bebop kind of borrowed that idea in one of their episodes with that floating clown guy um anyway in keeping um, with your theme even the retro future so much about the way that it, it looks and the way that it's presented is kind of retro future and uh i don't you know the the little drink that um not fade because that's Sting. Uh, I suddenly can't recall the other guys. Raban. Raban. He crushes that little. Yeah, those little glass. Yeah, bo- the they're hell? like juice boxes, but they're glass. Yeah. Yeah. They're interesting. Juice box glass of a creature. It's like, a, like that's. <laughs> it, yeah. It, they crush as a little creature and they crush yeah. it and, and drink their blood <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's a. That was. That's a very. You, that right there, you look at that and go, this is a David Lynch movie. <laughs> it just stands out. Um, so the Baron Vladimir is telling his nephews, Raban and Fade, who's played by Sting, about his plan to eliminate Atreides by manipulating somebody in Duke's circle to betray him. The Atreides leave their home world, Caladan, which is this beautiful ocean world. It's like basically Scotland for um, Arrakis, a barren desert planet, um, which is basically, you know, northern Africa. Um, a planet populated by gigantic sandworms. The native people of Arrakis, the Fremen, prophesize that a messiah will lead them to freedom. Duncan Idaho, one of Duke Leto's loyalists, tells him that he suspects Dune holds a vast number of Fremen who could prove to be powerful allies. The uh, Harkonnens vastly underestimated how many of the Fremen were. Um, and um, House of Trades is hoping to to bridge talks with the Fremen to uh, bring them to their side. But before Duke can form an alliance, the Harkonnens launch their attack. The Harkonnens traitor within the house is Leto's personal physician, Dr. Wellington Yui, who I really like uh, the actor that played him in the uh, 84 Dune. Uh, he just passed away, right? Um Yes. Betrays House Atreides because Baron has his wife imprisoned and won't release his wife, and you know until he goes to this plan. And um, and he's double. Baron crossed. then, yeah, yeah. Baron then has uh, has his mentat Piter kill Doctor Yui with the blade, um, but before that, Doctor Yui had put a gas tooth in Duke Leto's mouth and told him when the Baron gets close, bite down and kill the Baron. And uh that doesn't that doesn't work out the way that uh Dr. Yui had hoped and when Leto does it he ends up killing Piter, but the Baron lives. Um but Dr. Yui does uh end up saving Jessica and Paul by giving them, you know, an escape plan Mm-hmm. to get out of there as the Harkonnens and the Sadokar attack the uh, House Atreides uh, base on Arrakis. Uh, they escape into the desert and they are given sanctuary by some Fremen. Paul assumes a Fremen name, Muad'Dib, and emerges as their leader. Um, and that was really cool because he asks... You know, he he's looking at the moon and he says, "What do you guys call the shadow of the moon?" And they say, "Muad'Dib." And he says, "Okay, that's what I want to be called." Um, it's kind of weird because it ends up meaning having a more meaning later. But um, 
Also, and some he, variation, you know, like some deviation from the book, the named after the right. Mahdi. Um, and and what is, what is this literary device that that these guys like Tolkien, Herbert? The, the everybody's got to have like 19 names and uh it's really interesting it's an interesting thing that happens because like paul has 38 names by the <laughs> end like it's crazy and also another thing that's kind of like that is sometimes some of the names are similar and you're like wait uh-huh. and you try and like that doesn't make any sense like uh you know it's hard to pronounce some of them the first but, time i know. read it i thought i was i thought i was mistaking it or that there was a typo or something i was like wait wait wasn't his name Mahdi? Like, and now it's Muadib. Like, I'm I'm not yeah. sure what's happening, but uh, yes, good stuff. Another uh, deviation from the book is um, Paul teaches the Fremen to build and use the weirding modules. Now, in the the book, the weirding way is more of a hand to hand martial art because because of the spice and technology and any kind Personal of future fields. tech. Yeah, personal fields, any kind of um, ballistic weaponry is defeated by these personal shields. So hand-to-hand combat becomes the only way to fight again, like classic battle, Yeah, you know. Uh, in the movie version, um, I know David Lynch kind of went on uh, a rant about he didn't want to do kung fu on the back <laughs> of sandworms. And so they changed it to these weirding modules which is kind of neat it it wraps around their throat and then you hold this handheld uh little blaster and you use an amplification of your own vocal cords to make uh-huh. like a sonic wave to shoot things um and the way they showed i mean when i was a kid i thought that was some of the coolest crap like when there's a group of fremen and they take out one of the uh spice mining vehicles and it's just like one of the coolest scenes in the movie it just explodes you know, I was thinking, you know, with there already being, and I know a lot of people really dog this movie for that, but like you said, it's kind of a creative and an interesting turn, but with they're already establishing the voice, like that's part of the, the story in the book and things. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes sense that there's like this sonic weapon. It may not be as steeped in the mythology and the rituals of the Bene Gesserit, but it, I was like, okay, sure. That makes sense. Sure. Why not? Well, and and I saw the movie first. So I saw the movie first as a kid, and then I saw it later. I didn't read the book probably until I was like 15 or 16. By that time, I had probably seen the movie five times. Uh-huh. So when I first read the book, I was like, oh, so in the book they do like, you know, uh, like hand-to-hand combat with mm-hmm. these knives. I was like, oh. And in my head, I couldn't get the visuals out of my head of the cool, weirding way, <laughs> like, you know, vocal guns. Yeah. So I think both versions are cool. <clears throat> I think for what they had to work with in 84 and visually it translated to the screen really well. Um, with that, Paul and the Fremen uh, make attacks on the Harkonnens and basically stop spice production on all of Arrakis. The spacing guild informs the emperor of the t- deteriorating situation and demands he rectify it. Um, during this time, Paul falls in love with Chani Um a young Fremen warrior, Jessica becomes the Fremen's reverend mother by ingesting the water of life, a deadly poison which she renders harmless by using her Bene Gesserit abilities as an after effect. Jessica's unborn child, Alia, later emerges from the womb with full powers of an adult reverend mother, which is kind of <laughs> creepy and interesting all at the same time. In a prophetic dream, Paul learns of the plot of the emperor and the guild to kill him. He also sees that they fear he will consume the water of life. Um, When Paul's dreams suddenly stop, he drinks the water of life and has a profound psychedelic trip in the desert. So this is basically peyote. And then he gains power. Jim Morrison out there in the desert. Right. (laughs) He gains powerful psychic powers and the ability to control the sandworms, which he realizes are the spices source. Um, the Emperor then amasses a huge invasion fleet above Arrakis to wipe out the Fremen and regain control of the planet. He has Raban beheaded and summons Baron Harkonnen to explain why spice mining has stopped. Paul launches a final attack against the Harkonnens and the Emperor Sadokar at Arakeen. That's the uh, capital city where the Atreides were based out of before uh, House Harkonnen betrayed him. 
Riding atop of sandworms and brandishing sonic weapons, Paul's Fremen warriors easily defeat the Emperor's legions. Paul's sister, Alia, mortally wounds Baron Harkonnen, who is sucked through a breached <laughs> palace wall and into the mouth of a sandworm. That whole shot is one of the best shots in the whole movie. It's really cool. It is wild, though. I mean, it's, it's yeah, Paul enough. confronts the defeated Emperor, and then one of the coolest scenes and also weirdest scenes in the movie is he fights fade in a knife duel. Um, and that's, I really like the way they did that. Um, this is much after we see the weird kind of erotic scene where fade comes out just in his jockstrap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after killing fade, Paul demonstrates his newfound powers and fulfills the Fremen prophecy by causing rain to fall in Iraq. Cause that's a huge deviation from the yeah. book. And Alia declares him to be the Kwisatz Haderach. Um, yeah. So I think what he really went for, besides telling the story and adapting this really long, complicated story and trying to fit it into a, it's like two hours and 20 minute edit of the film, he mostly succeeds. And uh, some of these visuals are done. Mm-hmm. Some of the changes, I think, are purely for the visual narrative. Like the weirding way guns, yeah. Um, but a lot of the visuals are straight out of the book. A lot of the scenes with the sandworms are straight from passages in the book. Mm-hmm. The Fremen still suits are pretty much exactly as the book describes them. A lot of the the, the way the ships look, that weird like it's a very retro future '60s sci-fi spaceship. Like they're all weird cylinders and ovals yeah. and stuff with other parts sticking out. Like, um, you know, they were definitely not designed by somebody who had any sort of semblance of how space or aircraft would work. Like, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, it wouldn't need to be like, you know, right. In this, to a in point, this universe. This, yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought the shot at the end of the movie where it rains on Arrakis was a cool shot showing that it basically showing kind of hinting at what Paul becomes later. The mm-hmm. fact that he has that kind of, uh, ability to mentally control the weather it just speaks for what becomes later in the series of books we won't get into that right now i don't want to spoil that for anybody (laughs) that only wants to talk about this base uh movie yeah but uh yeah that's a lot it's a it's a it's a huge book it's a huge movie and um it's really kind of overshadowed by sting and his britches because it, you can't walk away from it. Not you know. I saw Sting on uh, Colbert the other night. He still looks really good. He's, he's, he does. Yeah. He's got yeah. one of the best scenes in the movie where he talks about right before he fights Paul Trace. He's like, "I will kill him." That's a great one. Yeah. All I see is an Atreides. I want to kill. Yeah, I mean that was just. Uh, he might have one of the best. Uh, scenes by a rock star in a science fiction movie ever. He definitely beats Mick Jagger. <laughs> we should compile that. Like, uh, <laughs> best of uh, RFC's yeah. Best of Rock Stars in Science Fiction, <laughs> Volume 1. There you go. That can be in a whole episode, man. Or does That's it a have lot to of research. Be, does it have to be sci fi or can it be fantasy too? Because. Yeah, we could probably lump fantasy in there. Fantasy sci fi. It's a pretty it, big. Was Iggy Pop in any movies? Uh yeah, like I, a, I, most recently. Like a, oh, what? Go ahead. I was gonna say, was he ever any any sci-fi or action stuff? Mm, well, he was in the Crow, uh, City of Angels. And, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he was just recently in Jarmusch's uh, Dead Don't Die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. He was yeah. really he was a zombie. It was great. It was like really great little. Well, thing he there. didn't need any makeup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, but, but man, yeah, overall, I don't really find the the reception of this film and its status, its legacy to be fair. Because if you go back and watch this, it is so imaginative and it is so creative. It is so huge and um, and beautiful. I, I, I get it. Some people don't understand. And it does kind of, you know, it would, it serves to have read it. It serves to kind of know the, the story a little bit. But if, it, if you don't, it's still a great film but i mean i didn't like i said i watched the movie four or five times before i read the book and uh, i still really enjoyed the story uh later on let's see there was the 
the book or the movies what I saw first and then I read the book and then there was a game that came out on the Sega Genesis. Oh my goodness. Doom yeah. Battle for Arrakis, that real-time strategy game. I yeah. got hooked on that game, man. And that was the precursor of the team that went on to make Command & Conquer. Yeah. Um, they yeah. later did a remake of that original Sega Genesis game, Dune 2000, and it came out on PC and uh, PlayStation. I remember that. Yeah, but... Um, the game when the game came out it made me interested in it all over again i went back and watched the movie again and read the book so i've gone through that circle a few times the um, um the genesis game i had the actual i had the cartridge and yeah me too was it d- just destroyed me i'm not good at real-time strategy but i still had oh, it because i loved yeah it was fun though it was hard and i love the the story and i love the universe so much which brings me to my question my my theory of Tolerance versus love of something. So visualize with me, if you will. <clears throat> you have on one plane, you have your tolerance for deviation from a work, right? So that's maybe your vertical. And then on the other plane, you have how much you love something. So the greater your love, the less your tolerance. Or if you have a little bit of love, then you have great tolerance. But there's a point where they cross where you have a lot of love where you love a, a world and, a, and an, a universe so much that you will take even great variation because you just want more of it. And that's where I think this movie lands. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Especially if you're a hardcore fan of the original book. Um, yeah. I, I still feel like as an adaptation for the time, with what they had to work with, with the crazy studio demands, with, I mean, this movie, um, let me scroll down on my notes here. So $42 million budget. Yeah, the 84 version. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, it had gone back as far as the late sixties trying to be adapted by, uh, Jodorowsky. Right. And he had some crazy casting like he wanted uh, Marlon Brando uh-huh. and all that crazy stuff and uh there was some musicians he wanted to cast in the movie too I want to say at the time um you know eventually that fell apart you know and then Ridley Scott was supposed to do Dune this Did is really in 1980 80 or 81 yeah this is before Blade Runner so Ridley Scott is kind of dune falls in his lap and he's looking at it and he reads the script and he looks at the budget and he kind of looked at it and said there's no way you guys can make this movie for this <laughs> and right when he's saying no way he got the script that became blade runner and he's like this i can do and he walked off <laughs> to do blade runner and then that's when it it pat uh, um rafaela de Laurentiis was the one that really wanted to get this movie done and she found david lynch to do it and uh i think lynch agreed to do it because he really wanted to make a big movie he had he had only done um i don't know what came before 80 what came before 84 he um elephant man elephant man that's what it was was just coming out elephant man yes so uh you know but that was more of like an independent kind of uh quirky he wanted to do something you know where he could do a big movie and uh you know that's why he took it so oh eraserhead was before that too yeah eraserhead was before that that was the first kind of uh breakthrough get recognized and then then elephant man and then this i think and then blue velvet yeah but it Um, soured him on that that whole process i think and I don't think he ever did anything that was a reinterpretation or a development of someone else's story ever again, except maybe the straight story, which is based on a true story. But I don't think he's ever done anybody else's work again. Yeah, was, there's another there's another movie I love where the director did a good job, but had such a battle with the adaptation that they decided to never do another one again. Like, God, I can't remember who that was. <laughs> oh, I wish I could remember off the top of my head. Yeah, it's just funny. And, and you know, like I said, the studio was playing hardball with her. And this is at a time when a movie over two hours wasn't doing well. 
Yeah. Like theaters were really into a 90 minute runtime. And you see that a lot between the years of oh, like yeah. 81 and about 91. Well, like it's because everyone was movies. doing so much Coke in the 80s. They had, you know, they didn't have, <laughs> just had to get in, get out quick. Didn't have the patience or the uh, attention span for anything more than that. Yeah. But I do, like I said, I, I, I really appreciated the changes and it's a lot like um our friends at cinephile his fits were talking about the new adaptation and they were talking about how peter jackson adapted lord of the rings and why he changed certain things for the medium i feel like the changes that lynch made to the book to fit the constraints and the budget they had at the time still work really well visually i think it still holds up quite a bit i think so um you know, some of the acting is a little <laughs> suspect. Um, it's a little theatrical. It's a little uh, melodramatic in places. Yeah, but it's still fun. I mean, Kyle McLaughlin is maybe a little bit older, but really they did a good job making him look young because the guy they cast for Duke Leto was so much older. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and then Patrick Stewart as, uh, as Gurney Halleck. That guy hasn't aged since that movie. If you watch that and then you watch something Patrick Stewart like in Logan, I'm like, this is he hasn't he yeah. looks exactly the same. Yeah. yeah, well done. He and and Paul Rudd. I mean, people talk about Rudd, but Patrick Stewart is doing a damn fine job. He got to like a certain point and then just stopped. He stopped aging after yeah. 40, I think. He yeah. just literally looks Good on him. insane. Yeah. I think and it's interesting to note there's a few actors that kind of crossed over and they were in like every sci-fi movie of the 80s i was looking over the cast and crew and i was just really impressed it's a it's really got a great if at the time some of these people weren't recognized they certainly were Dean later Stockwell, like max yeah. von sidow so yeah. max von sidow is in conan the barbarian he's in dune he's in a star wars movie and he's in solomon kane and he's in like I'm just like all these things that I love. I'm like, man, that dude got around. Yeah. Uh, Sean Young being both in yeah, uh, Blade, Blade Runner. Runner and Dune, and then later Ace Ventura. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a that's goes off the off the path, right? But yeah, there's uh, and this was a time that this is the time of the the De Laurentiis like they were just throwing money at all kinds of stuff. Um, it's interesting to see how many movies they produced and probably half of them were really good. And the other half of them were not so good. <laughs> <laughs> this one turned out to be pretty good because they had a director that cared. I keep waiting for this one to, to for the rest of the world to catch up on this one. Um, and I do think it's cause it is dense and the language is tough. Uh, it's, it is very foreign, but that's one of the reasons why I really like it. I guess that the, the, the premieres, they were handing out glossaries. Um, printed glossaries so that you understood what some of the words were and what they meant. Like who's no, who would know what a ganja bar is like right off the bat. And you, and you see that movie the first time in the theater and, and she says, it's a ganja bar. And you think that maybe you didn't hear correctly, you know? So I, I can see how it probably stumped audiences early on, unless you had an opportunity to see it four or five times and let it all soak in. But yeah. uh, if you don't, if you're not brave enough to watch it four or five times, you may not get its brilliance. She maybe I, I feel like sometimes people are not patient enough because she basically explains that to she, him. That, oh, you know, you're right. She basically yeah. says, I'm holding this at your neck. If you move, this will enter your skin. It will kill you. Yeah. So, I mean, you, how much more explanation do you need <laughs> that it's like a crazy poison needle of death? Good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so I don't understand the words, but I understand that if I get poked by it, I'm going to die. It'll yeah, kill the main I guy mean, that I'm looking at. Yeah, some of the true. other stuff maybe needed to be explained, but I feel like that's kind of silly. As an ex some of the stuff it works really well. I think the visuals explain it enough. And then there are some forced um, voiceover narration we hinted at earlier. Some of that works really well, and some mm -hmm. of it just sounds. I don't know if it was the ADR director or if it was Lynch, but sometimes some of the voiceovers sound weird. Like he's like, I want you to whisper really creepily while you oh, say right. this. And <laughs> the whispering. Yeah. Um, Arrakis. <laughs> some of it works really well. Some of it doesn't. <laughs> well, 
I love it. I think it's great. No, I, the movie itself, yeah. I really, really, I really enjoy. It's fun. I've never watched it and not like just been sucked into that crazy world because it's so foreign. And I think that's another thing that makes it work is it's really kind of strange in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, and then one thing that I I I like about this version is he brings the characters to the forefront a little bit between the actors, the acting itself, changing a couple of the scenes to adapt the story more for the film. I feel like you almost care more about what's going on with the characters in this version than in other versions that are out there. Mm. I I don't think you're wrong. And maybe we can do a sister episode to this one and talk about that new one. We won't we probably won't invite the Cinephile Hissy Fit guys though, because we already know how they feel. Yeah, if you if you're listening to this, <laughs> check out our one of our uh co-network shows cinephile hissy fits they did an episode recently on dune we'll leave it in the show notes and those guys really uh really have a deep discussion on <laughs> the new 2021 dennis de adaptation of dune and uh, their thoughts on it which are positive in some ways and and uh, not so positive in others Great episode. Um, it was really yeah. fun to listen to. If you had to, if you had to pick anything about this movie that you would want anybody else to see or or uh, show them to explain why it's so great, what would you what would you pick for that? That's a really tough question. Um, there's so much that I I like. Uh, I I'm thinking. Well, one of my favorite scenes is I love when when Paul is addressing the Fremen in that big hall. Um, Dude, he has a great line. I love that part. He says, "Long live the fighters!" Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, that gets me like all pumped up, and yeah. uh, I really, I really think it's a, a cool moment. Um, and then I'd have to say the fight with Fade. Like, if you can't have fun watching that, then I mean, maybe you just don't like fun. The scene, and they they almost mimicked it in the new adaptation, but the scene where it shows the Fremen, like how they mount the worms in the original movie. That was so, when I was a kid, I was like, Whoa, I guess that's (laughs) the only way you could get on one of those giant things. Like it was so different. I love that scene. Um, I love the scene where he's training the Fremen, how to use the weirding module. And then one of them says his name and his name becomes a like a killing word because it yeah. shatters that giant rock. Dude, and, it's so uh, metal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, whoa. Yeah. Um, you know, that was just so cool. Um, I think the other scene that I really enjoy, and it just... I don't I don't know if I necessarily enjoy it, but it's the Baron's intro scene and you just get to see how disgusting and manipulative and selfish and corrupt the Harkonnens are when he's like talking to his nephews and then that other guy that's supposed to be in there like cleaning up something in the room and then the Baron just like psychotically murders this guy and then just yeah. throws him in this vet. I was like, What the hell is wrong with this happened? guy? Yeah. Yeah. That's Crazy. a villain. It's 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 right. very clear. Yeah, you don't. There's no mistaking. <laughs> the first time you see the sandworm come out is pretty cool too. They for like I said for this movie, the practical effects still really hold up. Like there was watching it recently, there wasn't any scene where I thought the sandworms didn't look pretty legit. They looked, yeah, they look great. They did a good job. It's only solid. Yeah. So go see it if you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you probably aren't listening. But yeah, go check it out. Watch it again. And uh, let's get let's get a trending hashtag on Twitter. David Lynch cut Dune eighty four. <laughs> Lynch's final cut Dune eighty four. Hey, it worked yeah. for Blade Runner. That's the long version. <laughs> hey, I'll get behind it. I'm gonna put right? it. In. Yeah, I think that'll wrap us up for our discussion on Dune eighty four. Before we digress into any uh, any more shenanigans, if you're out there and you haven't seen this version, check it out. Even if you've seen the new one, I think you'd still really enjoy this adaptation. If you haven't read the book, you should probably check out the book. It's definitely a 
literature worth exploring. Um, if you're looking for some other really cool shows, you have been listening to the Retro Futures Culture. We're a production of Ruinations Radio Network. Please subscribe, rate, review our show. And we'd love to connect with you on social media via Twitter at Futurist Retro. You can also connect to Ruminations Radio at Ruminations N. Um, visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Ruminations of Red Rum and Cinephile Hissy Fit and the original Ruminations from the Red Room. Support RRN at our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash ruminationsradio. And for all your burning questions, you can hit up our email, ruminationsradio at gmail.com. All right. Well, sir, Sir Optimus Prime, thank you for being my fellow Autobot. Thank you, Optimus. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me uh, gush on about this film. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, anytime. Yeah, we'll have to... Uh... We will have to have another episode later, maybe as we get closer to part two of the current adaptation, we will get to that. Because I'd like to get it at home so I can pick it apart a little bit. There you go. There you go. Like on a 4K. Oh, yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you. And everybody listening, peace out. Have a good one. Good night. Good night.